Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Luke 13, 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Father, help my mind, my heart, my words preach, teach this text. May you help me say what your intended meaning is when you delivered it, Jesus. And then by your Spirit, work in your manifold ways in our differing circumstances in life unto repentance, faith, joy in the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of Your name. Amen. This is second week in these first five verses of Luke 13. And last week, just in quick summary, we saw that the rub of what Jesus was saying is that the stunning thing is not that towers fall and kill 18 people, or that tsunamis wipe out 200,000 humans in one fell swoop. But the stunning thing is that any of us are left alive with another day to repent. And we saw last week the word perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Cannot mean merely physical death or mode of death, but it refers to the opposite of eternal salvation. It refers to an eternal perishing. No, I tell you, Jesus says twice, verse 3 and verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And last week, we left off with we are all sinners, born into sin, guilty before God and deserving of punishment. Far worse than a tower falling on us. But, we saw last week, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so there is a way out of this perishing. And Jesus says, it's Himself, it's the Gospel, it's His life, it's His death, it's His resurrection from the dead to save those who deserve perishing forever. And the question is, who are those people? 
The answer in our text, according to Jesus, is those who come to repentance. No! They're sinners. Oh, yes. No injustice from God's part was done to them in these deaths. But they're no worse than all of you. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What we saw is that what Jesus reveals here in this first paragraph of verses 1 to 5 is that every deadly calamity in this sin wrought world is ultimately a merciful call to those who stand living to observe it and to repent and to be saved from their sin and from their perishing. As Jesus said in verse 4, Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, they weren't, I tell you. But unless you all repent, you will likewise perish. Spiritual blindness means that we cannot see the point of everything around us. It means that you cannot look up to the stars and understand the psalmist. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. That's why they're there. That's why there's a sunset. That's why there's a beautiful tree or a flower or a toddler. It's not an end in themselves to worship those things. They're pointers to the one true God. And spiritual blindness cannot see it and respond appropriately. We cannot see the point of all the pleasures of our lives, nor the pain and the suffering that that point in all of that is the one true glorious God with whom we have to do. The pleasures that we all experience to one degree or another are signs. They're pointers to this is a taste of what God is like. But He's far better than that. The joy of having your healthy children play on your lap. The pleasure of eating out at a beachfront restaurant at sunset. A relaxing vacation. The overwhelming joy of having a wife who loves you lying asleep in bed beside you at night. They're there as tastes of there's a God. And the pleasure of that God far exceeds even all of that. And then on the other hand, like our text, towers falling, the pain and the suffering of humanity, cancer, earthquakes, Tornadoes, all are saying what sin deserves is like that. But far, far worse than that. All the pleasures that we experience are not meant to be turned into an end. Into a God. It's called idolatry. But they are signs of this eternal joy which is in God through Jesus Christ. And towers falling and tornadoes wiping out towns and cancer and brokenness and sickness and marriages being disintegrated are all signs. They're warnings. You do not want to perish. That's just a taste and have that kind of an experience, not just temporally, but forever 
That's Jesus' theology in verses 1 to 5. We have already seen that Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, when He wanted to, He spoke to a storm and stopped it. And even today, He can do that with tornadoes and hurricanes. He can turn them aside just one mile to miss that town. Or He could not. And when He doesn't, one of God's designs in tragedy is my and yours, and the world's repentance before Him. When natural disasters happen, or human evil at the hands of evil human beings, God is not on trial. We who live are on trial. And it is only because of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice that the tower of eternal crushing is removed from any of us. Any of who? According to the text. Those who come to repentance. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There are all kinds of evangelical Christians who think that because they agree that yes, Jesus is the Savior and He died on a cross and He rose from the dead and I agree with all that, they think they're saved even though they don't live a repentant life. They think, I'm in. Heaven and not hell is my destiny. I am secure. Even though they regularly and unrepentantly live in sexual immorality. Even though they, as a lifestyle, live with bitterness backbiting, gossip, unrepentantly. Even though they cheat purposefully, it's a business. If I can lie to people to get more money, I'll do it. After all, many of them have been told again and again that eternal salvation is not at all dependent upon repentance. The repentance is not a condition of being saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ forever. But only faith. But, meaning a faith that does not at all necessarily mean that tied to the essence of it is a repentance. It's no wonder that 25 years ago, John Piper observed, quote, we are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks on the street say they believe. Unmarried people sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of Luke warm, world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. End quote. Jesus says in our text twice, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And no wonder, because from the beginning of His ministry, this has been clear. This has been His message. As the Gospels open up, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or we saw a few chapters back in Luke, I have not come to call the righteous but I've come to call sinners to repentance. 
Repentance is the Bible call for a radical change of the heart toward God first. Then, and it works only that way, then towards other human beings. The Greek word for repentance, the verb form is metanoeo, meaning to repent, come from two words, meta and noeo, meta, change, shifting kind of, change, shift, noeo, mind, what you think, the way you perceive things. Repentance is this internal shifting from where you used to think, feel, desire, to the other direction. It's changed. It's this internal change from sin and spiritual darkness to, I see, I see the beauty of the glory of Christ and the gospel of salvation that is freely given to those who receive. And who wouldn't? And that's why Jesus now in Luke 13, goes on to unfold the message of repentance in verses 6 to 9. I mean, because the context, look, judgment is approaching, and therefore, bring forth, now he's going to, the fruits of repentance. That's where he's going here. Unless you repent, and now he's going to talk about the fruits of repentance before it's too late. Start with verse 6. And he told them a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And that owner, God, said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground in my vineyard? But the vine dresser says, listen to God's patience. And let me just say something right here. It most likely, this parable in the fig tree, in the context, Jesus probably particularly is referring to Israel as a nation, a people group, as the New Testament does all over the place might be why he uses the three years. It's been three years of my ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Okay. But then you hear the patience of God. Ooh. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. And then, if it should bear fruit next year, awesome, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So God comes. He says, there's a vineyard here. This tree, these fig trees go to 15 to 25 feet and they bear fruit annually. And He comes for three years and there's no figs. And it's sucking up the nutrients and the moisture from the other trees in the ground. It's a waste. Cut it down. But that patience, wait. Stick around it. Just try to help it out. But then if it doesn't, eventually, cut it down. So the point is we're looking at Luke 13, 2,000 years ago, not today, right now. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I've been here. The Messiah, the one prophesied about coming first to the nation of Israel is promised. And as a whole, repentance is not coming forth to the masses of them. Just a few. And they will finally be cut down if no fruit of repentance shows up. Okay. Now, by implication, especially we get into the times of the Gentiles, and the Gospel goes throughout 
the world for the last 2,000 years, or in the times of the Gentiles, we have quote-unquote Christian countries, or it used to be, like Western Europe, in America, that here's this, by implication, vineyard of God, and the same message is there. They're sucking up ground if there's no repentance in those individual lives. The vineyard of God's church. We're digging around the tree. The manure, week after week, they get this tender care of the Word of God being preached. But eventually, if no fruit of repentance is being born, they'll be cut down. Or as Jesus says in verse 3 and in verse 5, unless you repent... You all likewise perish. So what is the fruit of repentance? So remember, at the core of that word, in, in, in a context all over the New Testament, it first it's this inward turnabout, this change of mind, of thoughts, not just intellectual merely, it's this change of heart and disposition in here. And then it, it shows these fruits on a tree that bear outwardly to a degree or another. But to get to the fruit of repentance, I think it's a pretty safe place to go if we go to Galatians 5 for a minute. Because you are turning away from sinful lifestyles. That sinful nature we're born with you t- repentance, there's a change here. I'm turning away from this. Now those inclinations are still there called the works of the flesh. And this is how Paul writes in Galatians 5, starting with verse 19. Now the works of the flesh, the sinful nature that hangs with us, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Turn. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says now to us, the church, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and then he goes on, the, and the figs, the figs that bear on the tree, start with verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. It's that kind of outward change that happens because of something going inwardly that becomes evident that even John the Baptist was talking about in introducing Jesus. He says, you come here first to get baptized by me. I'm just a forerunner. And he says, don't you dare come here unless you're ready to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so, repenting refers to what happens within us, metonoeo, and then that change leads, never perfectly, but to varying degrees, a change of sinful unrepented from before, patterns, but now repentance is there. It's growing. It's hating sin. Repentance at its core is not the new deed. Repentance at its core is this internal miraculous change of disposition, of mind, heart, away from sin, toward God. And then on that tree, wow, it turned away from sexual immorality. Can't live that way. 
turned away from cheating people in business. I can't do that anymore. I've re- I got to repent from that. It turns away and when it sins, as a Christian, which all Christians do, it repents. It is a, it is a life of faith. It, it is a life of repentant trust in God. So our text to be saying to be saved eternally from perishing Jesus here demands that we experience a change and this is what all people are called to when they hear the message of Jesus Christ The repentance that happens in the heart of those who are being saved does not atone for their sin. Only Jesus Christ's substitutionary life and sacrificial death satisfies the just wrath of God against sinners. He did that work once and for all. The benefits of Christ's work according to our text, belong to those who repent and trust in Him. And that's why, as you just flip forward in Luke, Jesus is going to go to the cross and He goes to the cross. And He fulfills the Scripture. And He bears the wrath of God for sin, which He had none. And on the third day He rises from the dead, For the next five weeks, he's teaching his disciples. And on one occasion, this is why Jesus says to them, don't leave out the call of repentance. Chapter 24 of Luke, verse 46 and 47. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that... What's the result of Christ's work? This. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. And so while you go to Luke, book 2 called Acts, Jesus has ascended. Peter's preaching to the masses. Tells the story, the news of the Christ his substitutionary sacrifice, and his resurrection from the dead, and then the plea. Chapter 3, verse 19. This is what you do in response. Repent, therefore, and turn again so that your sins may be blotted out. Or text. So what I want to do till we close. Okay. Just, it seems to say that. How do how do we fit that into the large biblical picture of the whole council? How, how does that fit? So we don't we don't make wrong decisions or wrong judgments or take wrong implications. Okay, so how does that fit in the larger picture? I mean, I'm, I'm that kind of a guy. I just I gotta know. I just <laughs> okay. So this one attempt to try to do to think about what we've heard so far from this text and just fit into your larger theological Christian worldview. Start this way. It is just a biblical reality, when you read the Bible carefully, that not every human being will be saved from God's wrath just because Jesus went to the cross and rose again. There is a condition that people must meet in order to be saved on the day of judgment from the wrath of God. And that condition all over the New Testament is summed up as faith and repentance. It's probably better to say it this way, faith slash repentance. 
Or in our text, the way Jesus says it, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Okay, Being saved, I'm going to go very slowly and carefully, being saved from, even from today, from right this moment today, there's a future in front of us. It hadn't happened yet. Being saved from the future wrath of God on a day that's been appointed called the judgment day, or the way Jesus uses the term here, perishing, being saved from perishing on that day means a person has come to repentance from their God-belittling lifestyles and turn from that and they have turned to faith, trust in God, in Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal life, of putting their sin away. Now, faith and repentance are not two separate things. We can talk about them as distinct, but say it this way, they are two sides of the same coin. Faith, turn over to repentance. Now, now, why is that? It's because saving faith in Christ always, always involves this profound change of heart. Saving faith is not merely an intellectual agreement with doctrinal truth about Christianity. It is that. It's no less than that. But it is not merely that. Even the devil and demons believe correct doctrine, according to James. But saving faith is this profound change of your mind, of your heart, of your desires that pervades one's life. For example, the Gospel comes. You can say, and this is the promise that comes where God says, I will be your real, eternal joy. Any pleasure you've ever had was only a pointer. I am far better. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened and miserable. Sometimes you want to end your life. Come unto me. I will give you rest for my guidance, my commands, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So trust me. Okay? Got it? Come. Okay. Turn away from that. And go this way. Follow me. Okay. That's what God says. Faith says, Yes! I will trust that you have my eternal, joyful, happy intentions in mind in whatever you tell me to do. I'll trust your commands that they are for my happiness. That your promises that have been purchased in your Son, Holy God, were really purchased for my eternal happiness. Oh, you say turn from sexual immorality, thievery, gossip, backbiting, and obey you? Faith says, yes! And it does it. And then, bam, look at it. See it? Faith just did a U-turn. You didn't add something to faith. It's the fruit of what faith is, that tree. If God, and when He plants real fig trees that bear fruit, there will be figs. That's the faith that says. Just go back, even a little bit wider, biblical picture, the Scripture's clear that all of us, every human being is born into sin. We are not sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we are by our nature sinners. We love to sin and by nature 
by nature, we have no inclination to really love God, appreciate and cherish the message of the gospel of Jesus. We have no capacity for faith and repentance. And yet the message of the gospel goes out and then it says, now, believe, repent, turn again that your sins may be forgiven. And this means, here's a bigger biblical picture, that behind a person's meeting the condition of final salvation, which is faith and repentance, that behind that is the miracle of new birth. And new birth is the act of God that precedes and it enables faith and repentance. Just for a moment, listen to how it's put in the book of Acts. You turn to chapter 11 of Acts, verse 18. They're trying to figure this thing. I mean, Gentiles can be saved. And look how it gets worded. Then to the Gentiles also, evidently, God has granted the condition to be saved. Repentance. I guess to them, now why does he make God the actor of the verb? He granted, he gave repentance that leads to life. Or in chapter 14 of Acts, we read in verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Or chapter 16 of Acts, verse 14. Paul's preaching. There's a woman there named Lydia. And the text says, Luke says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We all in this world, born into this world, your children, my children, all of us included, cannot see the light of the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus. We cannot come to Christ as our joy. We cannot turn from our temporal pleasures of our sinful lifestyles and cling to Christ until God first regenerates us. Or let me just say it this way. Until, the way Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, he's already talked about, if you just read the context, we're all just gone. We're born by nature, children of God's wrath, deserving it. We just way with the world. Repent, repent, love Jesus, and we just don't hear a thing, even if we grow up in church. And then we come to verse 4, and Paul says, but... God. Unless the but God, you'll never meet the condition. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Am I going slow enough? I'm going to repeat myself. And you can tell me about that later, and that's okay. Kids, you already said that. I know. Pedag- what, is, what is it? Redundancy is the handmaiden of good pedagogy teaching. Repentance and faith are not God's work. Well, I mean, got to hear me. God doesn't repent, and God doesn't have faith. Repentance and faith are our work. 
But we will never perform those unless God does His work by overcoming our deadness, hardness of heart, rebellious heart toward Him called new birth or regeneration. Or another word is, unless He calls us to faith. It's a few times in in the Bible, when Paul tries to lay out what I'm trying to do here a little bit, the larger biblical world theological view of what's happening in Romans 8 when he says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined, whom he predestined, he also, and here's the word, called. I don't know how to distinguish that thing there from new birth. I think it means the same thing because everyone he calls comes to faith and they're justified. Or listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. For Jews, they demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. See, we're all born in sin and we're all blinded. But, but, but what do we do? What do we Christians do? What does Paul do in his ministry? We preach Christ crucified. <laughs> and it's a stumbling block to Jews, and it is foolishness to Gentiles. See that? They won't meet the condition. Except for the next verse. But, to those who are called, from among both Jews and Greeks, to them Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So now, Just follow me closely. We sinners, we who are Christians even now, we do nothing, absolutely nothing, in order to be born again. It is based on new birth. New birth is based on no conditions that we fulfill. So, in other words, new birth is unconditional. Okay. Now, there's a judgment day coming in the future where it will be made really clear in the resurrection of the dead. Enter into. Away with you. The separation of the sheep and the goats. To be eternally saved in the future from perishing is Conditional. It's conditioned upon your coming to faith and repentance. Alright, let me even make the picture bigger about all these differing aspects of this one huge thing we refer to as salvation. Oh, there's different aspects to it. I can't help it because that's the way the New Testament causes us to think about it. Election, New Testament word, election is unconditional. New birth or regeneration is unconditional. Justification is conditional. We're justified by faith. Future eternal salvation is conditional. In other words, God unconditionally chooses whom He will regenerate unconditionally. And when He so does, in the hearing of the Gospel, He creates His people. That person is a part of the body of Christ. They are in Christ. They are may arrive in Christ. And all these New Testament figures, He's done all that unconditionally. And the evidence that He's done that, the evidence that they are born again, is faith and repentance. That new disposition that is turned away from the old life and this love for God in Jesus Christ and a love for His Word and a walking in obedience and in its disobedience, it repents and hates it. That new birth puts the person on the path 
of sanctification. Another New Testament word. On the path of this bloody battle against their sin. This bloody battle to fight against their innate desires that kind of still remain there, though they have new desires by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Fight a faith. Fight to trust the promises of God over the promises of the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's the sign of those who are genuinely born again. What's the sign? Those people will... I use that word on purpose. They will to repent. Oh yes, human beings have a will. And if that will is not used to will Christ is my Savior, you will perish. I'll say it again. Hopefully a little bit differently. New birth is based on nothing we do. It's based on nothing we will. It is an unconditional act of God's grace. Final salvation from the future judgment is conditional. It will not happen apart from the action of faith and repentance in those persons. That's why Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus does not say, unless you repent in order to be born again. It's not what He means and it's not what He says. But He does say, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So when we ask the larger question, the question isn't, what must I do to be born again? It's not the question the Bible is asking when it says through the mouths of people, what must I do to be saved? What do we do, Peter? He says, repent and turn again that your sins may be forgiven. When we ask that question, what must I do to be saved? We mean, what must I do to be forgiven of my sins so that when I stand on the day of judgment, I will be absolutely free from any guilt or punishment on that day? How do I get free from perishing? When we ask that question, the Bible answers it this way. Meet the condition. That's how you do it. And the condition of repentant faith is no mere human decision. It is a human decision. It is a movement of our human will. But it's much more than that. It is that willful decision that is rooted in and springs from God's unconditional grace of new birth. So when the jailer asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Or let me just change it because I don't think he means anything different. Paul, Silas, what condition must I meet in order to be saved? Paul does not say, no, nothing, you don't have to do anything. It's not the answer. Paul's answer is, meet the condition. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's like essentially what Jesus is saying in our text. Repent, or you will not be saved. Uh, that is, you will perish. So don't get confused. There are not two ways of salvation or 30 different ways of salvation. There's only one way of salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. And the way that people know that they're attached to Him is because they've come to faith or repentance. I'll show you in a minute different ways the New Testament will talk about it. But that faith, this is the problem that's happened in American evangelicalism. It's just not defined. You know, even Bob, when he's witnessing to a lady yesterday and Oh yeah, I got family members who do this and that. Well, because they... I don't, I don't know their family members, just assume. Well, they say, I, I like Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Boom. And people can do horrendous things to other human beings unrepentantly. But, 
that faith is not some little human, emotional, at the moment decision or a work that anyone does, like walks down an aisle, say the sinner's prayer, kaboom, magically, you're in. But that biblical faith is a miracle of God that springs from what the Bible talks about in regeneration. It's the miracle of God producing the condition of saving faith, which is so real and so deep and so profound that the Bible describes that in various different ways. Let me just give you an example. So when we ask the New Testament, what must I do to be saved by Jesus Christ from eternal wrath and saved unto Him forever? Here's a few answers. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, answers that question this way. Believe. It's the verb form of faith. This is how you do it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. When you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it's answered this way. And there's no contradiction. This is what you have to know. But to all who did receive Him. Okay, now, now we know that this believing, it's not, not just a mental affirmation. There's something about receiving Christ. All who did receive Him. Who believed in His name. He gave the right to become the children of God. In Acts 3.19, the answer comes this way. Turn from your sin and embrace Christ. Well, Peter used the word. Repent and turn again so that your sins may be blotted out. The book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says it this way. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who... What might be the next word? Well, he uses the word who obey Him. Wait a minute, is it faith or obedience? Yes, they're not different. There's just no difference biblically to that. I'm in quicksand. I'm going to die. I'm up to my neck. Jesus says, here's my hand. Trust me. Okay, I believe in you. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to reach my hand up though. It doesn't make any sense. Or John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not... And there they trip us up again. John, why do you do that? Why didn't you just use the word in the form of the word pistis or pisteo again, the word for believe in Greek? You just said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, and then he uses the word obey. The Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or that's why Jesus can easily say, and you know what? He's got the gospel right in the implications of it when he says in Mark 8, 34 to 35, and calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. So, I mean, it's just a taste. How is it that this one thing called saving faith, the response to the message of the gospel of Christ, they're in, they're in, we're in. And that's biblical. How is it that that one thing, saving faith, has all these differing aspects to it? I think the answer is just simply this. Because Jesus purchased it. Because when He went to the cross... He purchased everything. Jesus purchased by His blood all 
the unconditional aspects of our salvation. And He purchased all the conditional aspects of our salvation. This salvation in Christ means that God Himself came to darkened, hard-hearted, sinful souls and shine the light into our hearts. And we believe. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4, 5-6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as Your servants for Jesus' sake. Now listen to Him. For God, the One who created the world by His Word, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. And guess what happened? (laughs) Created. That same God, Paul says, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of being a Christian. And Jesus describes the effects of that light shining in the human heart with the Gospel this way in Matthew 13.44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up. And then, see the effects of it? Then, here's the, here's the fruit. Then, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has in order to buy the field. When we see this dynamic of saving faith, when we just think, wow, and it's not just this mere, look at that, I mostly high at some teenage rally in the mountains and I said, okay, I received Jesus, but it's this, that's what saving faith is, a radical shift of the heart that actually tastes and sees the pleasure of God over all the pleasures of my sin in a way it never did before, even though it may be raised in church, that that's what saving faith is. See, when you see that in the Bible, then for Jesus to say in our text, unless you repent, you will eternally perish, is no problem in understanding. How do you apply this? Continue to repent. That's in other words, let me say the same thing. Continue to walk in faith. Continue to be broken over your sin. If you've never come to Christ, turn to Him. Embrace Him. And be washed from your sins. We walk by faith, not by sight. Paul said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The essence of living by faith is living by faith and repentance. You sin. And when you don't care, and for three days you don't care, and for a week you don't care, you should be getting more and more disturbed. This is the Christian life. Then you turn. I hate that. And you you feel like this Romans 7 schizophrenic. When you feel that and you understand the Gospel, let your joy and your assurance of your salvation rise. Look at that. I know I hate that. Oh, let me turn. Oh, will you forgive me so and so? And then you pray, God, oh, forgive me. Yes, He's faithful and just to forgive your sin. That's the ongoing fruit on the end of the fig tree of the Christian life. Or, you can come on up, Serge, and some of you get Alex. Let me just close this way. Here's the application. Listen 
and obey Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You wouldn't want that. Christians don't want that. That's why they listen to this. But saying, what do you do? Help us, Hebrew writer. He says this, exhort one another. You can't do that if you're a lone ranger Christian and you don't have Christians around you who know you. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because here's the truth. We have truly come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written, here's the word of the Lord. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And now, dear baptized believer, as we're singing, we'll be handing out the cup and the bread. And this joining together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, is a particularly special time to examine your hearts. And as we do, and we see unconfessed sin that comes to our mind, you do it. And then you take with great joy the body of Christ into your mouth and the cup of His blood. As it's passed out, we will hold them and then pray over them and partake of them together.